<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. I'm happy to say we have a new home now with the Blumhouse Company, but you'll still be able to access all of our podcasts in the same way through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. I've spent my life in the arts. Before I was born, my father went to art school here in L.A., but was never able to make a living of it. He worked at two jobs, as a cab driver and at an aerospace company as a draftsman, to support his four kids, and had to give up his dream as an artist. Drawing was my first love, too, though it gave way to writing when I got serious about that at the age of 12. I was also interested in the creative process. Everything was fascinating to me in my wonder years. I drew, I wrote, I joined a band and sang and wrote songs, and even got my first 8mm movie camera as a graduation present from junior high school. And that opened up a whole new world for me. It also opened my curiosity about the process of creation. I first started doing interviews when I was in high school. My first one-on-one -on -one was with my writing god, Ray Bradbury, when I was in my early teens. Next came Rod Serling. Though my first interviews were for the high school newspaper, when I started interviewing musicians, the reach went a little broader. The Moody Blues were the first band I ever interviewed, but soon I was chatting with the likes of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and reviewing records and concerts for the San Diego Door, where Cameron Crowe, who was a year or two younger than me, was plying his trade. At 18, I created my own monthly arts publication, Arthur the Magazine, and just moved on from there. Conversations with artists have always given me a lot of inspiration, and every time at bat, I learn something I didn't know before. These conversations over the years have always charged my creative batteries. My interests changed from music to film when I got into college, and later I started interviewing genre filmmakers on the late lamented local pay TV outlet, The Z Channel, where I spoke with people like William Friedkin, Steven Spielberg, John Landis, and the great John Carpenter. That was my first ever interview with Carpenter, who is probably the subject I've interviewed more than any other. He's always great in no-holds-barred conversation, and there's always something to learn that I never knew before and insights that always inspire me. I first met John in 1978 in a tiny recording studio in Hollywood where he was scoring a little movie called Halloween. Since then, he changed the course of independent cinema and all of horror cinema. But now he's a rock star, touring with his band, playing his soundtrack music, as well as original compositions to ecstatic audiences around the world. And with a new Halloween reboot in the works, it seems like the perfect time to catch up. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So your father was a music professor in Kentucky, in That's Bowling right. Green. That's right. And what was your childhood like as far as the music input? Wow. Well, grew up in a log cabin we lived in until I was, gee, 18 years old. So I got to see that log cabin. Did you? Yeah. Wow. Really? At, at a film festival at Kentucky University. Yeah. It, uh, Western Kentucky. Western Kentucky yeah, yeah. University, yeah. Uh, and my father had this super stereo, and off uh, off the days went uh, listening to classical music. That's all I, that's all I heard. Yeah. Uh, I would sneak in some of the stuff that I loved occasionally, but uh, classical music was the big deal. Well, did his passion for classical music drive you away from it, or did it give you an appreciation of it? No, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it, uh, and especially the uh, the music that was like scores, uh, the, the 
Hall of the Mountain King, the mm. Tchaikovsky stuff. Uh, all of that stuff was like a movie score. Right. So I could kind of imagine uh, movies when I heard this stuff. It was great. But you were growing up in the 50s and 60s. That's right. So that was kind of the rock and roll revolution in 1963 with the Beatles. Did that hit you in the face really yeah, hard? Huge. But I, <clears throat> I loved uh, earlier rock and roll, too, from the 50s. Through 63. Not quite as much as the Beatles. The Beatles yeah. were the tops for me. Yeah. So who did you like before the Beatles? Oh, I loved Elvis. I thought he was great. But uh, there's a lot of uh, a black rock and roll, black pop music that I mm -hmm. thought was really great. Like the chess label stuff. That's yeah. exactly it. Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow by, yeah. the, by the, the, who was it? The Shirelles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that stuff that. shows up in your early movies, too. I love that stuff. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, the mashed potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> the gravy. I mean, all those, all the girl, the black girl groups were fantastic. Oh, the Supremes and. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, huge. That yeah. stuff was great. So. Did you lose your interest in classical music, or could they hold hands? They held hands, and they were they were along for the ride. Uh, you know, the the Beatles were a really unique, fresh sound to me then. But uh, along came yesterday in 1965, and it was like, oh, there's classical music with the Beatles. Yeah, so, the string quartet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but it, yeah, it. Uh, I the first instrument I learned to play was uh, the violin. Really, my father insisted uh, yeah. at eight years old. It's time for you to learn the violin. Nice. One problem, only one problem. I had absolutely no talent <laughs> playing the violin. It was the really? wrong move to make. Yeah, I never got anywhere. No frets or anything. Man, <laughs> oh, it's hard. That's a really difficult instrument yeah. to sound good on. Yeah. So I never did sound very good. And what was your next instrument? Did you play classical piano? I tried, yeah. but I could play chords on the piano, little things. Mm -hmm. Guitar, I could play rhythm guitar and bass guitar. But, you know, I was never a virtuoso uh, a musician. I just never was. Right. My chops weren't that good. But did you write from the time you were a child, write music? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. And when was your first band experience? Tommy Lee Wallace got me into a band that he was a lead guitar player. Right. He was a he was a organ player in. I would play bass, and this was uh, in when I was a senior in high school. Wow! So you were seventeen, eighteen yeah, years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was cover band stuff, yeah, or did yeah. you write songs too? No, no, no. We yeah. just covered other stuff. So when you were eighteen years old. If you were given a choice of a career touring and being in a rock and roll band or being a filmmaker, did you know then what you would have chosen? Well, that was the choice I had to make. It was a couple of years later than 18, but that was the choice. And there was nothing. I was, <clears throat> there was no future in this little cover band in Kentucky. Right. Playing uh, bars. No, and, yeah. that wasn't going to happen. And uh, <clears throat> I got accepted to USC, and that was, you know, my dream was uh, cinema. Going into movies. And that was the big film school in America. I guess. USC. I guess it was. I didn't know. I, I thought UCLA might have been the place to go. Thank God I didn't go there. What began your interest in film? How did that sort of twist from music into film, your pursuits? Well, I went to the movies really young. I was, uh, I was four years old, I believe. I saw the African Queen. Oh, wow. And... Uh, <clears throat> memorable movie, but I didn't understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. It took me quite a while to figure it out. I fell in love with movies. I yeah. just fell in love with it. It was my first love. It was, it was a big-time deal. And uh, we, uh, my father, and it was an all-girls group, we went over to Germany in 68, the beginning of 68. I remember reading a Time magazine about film school. Yeah. And aha, uh -huh, they're teaching that now. Really? Wow. Interesting. So that's maybe not so much out of my reach because it just seemed impossible. That was pretty new. That uh, 68 was around the time where the study of cinema was pretty new for for universities. That's right. Colleges. That was right. Just starting. Now, it had been at USC for quite a while. Right. But nobody knew about it. It wasn't the thing to do, but it was in 1968. So I thought, well, 
maybe I can go to one of these film schools. And I looked up, where do they have film schools in the United States? And <laughs> Bob Jones University. Oh, <laughs> thank, great. Yes. Thank God I didn't go there. <laughs> oh, man. But uh, I applied and got into USC. So that's where I went. And so you... Did you have an understanding of filmmaking before that, or was that an introduction? How did you get into the film school? Well, I just wrote a, uh, they ask you to write an essay. You know, why do you want to be in movies, and, or why do you want to study film, and why do you want to go to this university? So I just made up some bullshit and, and got in. I don't know. It was amazing. And it gave you the opportunity to work with equipment for the first time, professional equipment. and it, it gave me the opportunity to learn everything technical about the movie business, about movies, making movies, everything. I mean, even down to the lab and animation and photography and sound and on and on, editing. They gave you a chance to, this is a place to learn it all. Yeah. And uh, it was invaluable education. So this know? was Disneyland to you. Oh, huge. It's all, I, I just couldn't believe it. So much so that I sort of neglected my other studies <laughs> at the university and concentrated on, you know, cinema. It kind of didn't matter so much as it turns out. <laughs> well, who knew? Yeah. I didn't know, but, but I was hoping. Who were some of the professors who came out there? Didn't Alfred Hitchcock come out and speak? Yeah, we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of, industry people that would come and talk to us. And all the, all the classical directors, pretty much, Orson Welles, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, all, the, all those guys came and spoke. But even the sort of the lesser lights, the Delmer Daves, and, uh, and just a, a raft of directors. Uh, Roman Polanski was there with his wife, Sharon Tate. This wow. was like six months before. Wow, yes. Oh. And uh, she was that gorgeous. was 1969 when yeah. the murders happened. God, she was gorgeous. Oh, my Lord. Hmm. Uh, but uh, Well, uh, w did any of these filmmakers make a particular impression on you or say something uh, that you've kind of kept with you th throughout your career? Well, they, you know, the, the, it was a performance for them in a lot of cases. They uh -huh. would be up in front of an audience performing and talking I about see. their work. And telling stories. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, Orson Welles was. We were part of him shooting the other side of the wind. That was the movie oh, he yeah. was making then. Which I hear is coming out soon. That yeah. they're putting it together. Yeah. I've seen it. Oy, oy, <laughs> okay. oy, oy. Hmm. But uh, so he wanted uh, a question and answer with students, and he wanted questions from students, real questions that didn't make any sense, mm. that were, to him, didn't make any sense, that were too oblique or too complicated. So he had a, a cameras in the room, and we had all of us sitting in there, and he would ask, we'd ask questions, and most of the questions were pretty straightforward. Right. But he had a couple of guys ask, you know, what is the future of filmmaking like? And he'd, he'd have them repeat the question and film it. Wow. Yeah. It was interesting. Were, what were the movies you were watching at that time that really had an impact on you? Oh, man, but everything. I mean, uh, we watched everything from silent films to uh, the most recent movies. And I saw films that I never had seen before, mm. never, ever had a chance to see. Right. And I discovered directors and, and movies that I didn't know about. I... I knew about Howard Hawks, but I didn't know about his early work. And mm. I saw it, and I said, my God, look at this. And uh, we saw some uh, uh, documentaries and industrial films that I guess were meaningful to some of the professors, and we kind of watched what they did with it. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, was eye-opening. The, the, we had a guy come by, his name is Slavko Vorkapich. Slavko Vorkapich... Wow was a director of montages way back in the day. Oh, so, so they had a special department yeah. for montage. So Slavko Vorkapich directed the famous montage where you see Wall Street crash. You see all the money tip over uh, and all that stuff. Wow. And he came in and analyzed Eight and a Half, the movie, Eight and a Half. The Fellini film. And I remember one, I remember, I don't know why I remember this, but he said if you, <clears throat> if you're on a, certain lens, a close-up lens, 
you're following a character, you can't tell the difference between a dolly shot and a pan. Hmm. I can't remember what the lens was, but he had a, a demonstration of it. I see what he means. Right, yeah, right. I see what he means. Right. Well, like if you have a, a camera on a pedestal and you and someone is walking around you on a horse or something, it looks like they're just going straight forever. Uh-huh. And it's just the camera turning. But uh, it's uh, and all the properties of, of the camera and lenses. And we had to learn the... Uh, we had to learn the ASC manual. Oh, uh, wow. That was started. I remember buying it and then starting looking through it. And I was like, my God, this is complex. <laughs> what the hell is this? So it was a much more technical learning field than it is today. I don't know what it is today. I haven't been yeah. down there. I don't know. Yeah. Is, is it creative? Is it, is it technical? What is it? Yeah. Well, the tools are so much simplified uh, these days. That's true. And the democratizing of filmmaking has made for good news and bad news. Well, tell me about the good news and the bad news. <laughs> well, because someone who has a great imagination can get it on f- cinema screens. Uh-huh. But everybody can make a movie. Uh-huh. And so that's good news and bad news I because see. anybody see. can make a movie. I see. <laughs> well, you know, they're using digital now, I assume, right? Completely, everybody yeah, is, yeah. yeah. Everybody is. Yeah. Man. Yeah. What were the movies that really inspired you to want to go to film school and to pursue uh, filmmaking? Well, there's one in particular that uh, is the movie that inspired me to get into movie business, uh, be, go to film school, become a movie director, and that was Forbidden Planet. Mm. It was kind of a famous science fiction movie in the 50s. Yes, a beautiful widescreen. Oh, yeah. And uh, I saw it in beautiful widescreen. And coincidentally, that was the first movie ever that had a synthesized soundtrack. Right. And I think that has something to do with all of it put together, my love of that sound. I still really? love the sounds in that movie. Yeah, well, I mean, your your music is famous for being electronic and a one-man band, basically. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's become iconic. You know, people impersonate you, uh, even to this day, doing a Carpenter-like score. Uh, do people come to you asking if you would score their pictures? Well, recently, yes. Recently, I've gotten a couple of... Uh, matter of fact, I want to do a, a movie this year that they came to me and asked me to do the score on I'm going to work with my son and godson on it. That That's the fun part. Great. But finally, no one's ever asked me before. Really? Yeah. And would you have done it before? Sure. Really? I'd love to. Now you no. tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so, music, going on tour, you become a rock star no, in your stop, 60s. Stop, no. uh, seriously, you're playing around the world and to sell out crowds. Tell me about that feeling. I mean, this is something you probably dreamed about when you were 18. Yeah, not quite this way, though. Yeah. Um, this was all cooked up by my uh, godson, who uh, said, this you know, Dan we Davies? ought to take, yeah, Daniel, Daniel Davies, we yeah. ought to take this on the road and play. And he's talking about the the two albums that we did, Lost Themes albums. You're right. They're great and, albums. And uh, thank you, thank you. And the uh, movie scores that I did. And uh, he knew this band. He knew the people in the band. They were the rhythm section for Tenacious D. And he, he, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And uh, they were pros, old pros of the business. So we started, we started uh, talking to these agents about setting up shows. And uh, it all kind of worked. The shows came in and, and <clears throat> wasn't sure at first what it would be like. No one knew what it was. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of a nostalgia night where you get to hear the movie themes. Yeah. And we cut together footage and played it behind us. And then we played new stuff. And anyway, it turned out great. And we took this thing on the road around the world and went as far as uh, Athens, Greece. We went wow. there. And uh, the, the most amazing show I remember was in Paris at this incredible theater. Oh, my God. God, and uh, that was the night that uh, Donald Trump won the election. Forget that. I wish I'd been where you were. Well, but anyway, um, it was an amazing place to be, and uh, I'm 
stunned that uh, so many people came out to see us. That, that was what I was worried about. Well, they, no one's going to care. But they were all sold out. Yeah. Well, not all of them, no. Some Pretty of them much. were. We, had, we went to a couple of places that were thinly... <laughs> like the Barstow type gig. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> now, had you ever toured uh, in your youth in a band, or was it all in town? Well, I toured on that uh, uh, USO tour over in Germany with uh-huh. an all-girls band. I played bass. Wow. Yeah. And we went from town to town, bass to bass playing. And it was, but that was, that was different. It was a... This is a whole different ball game, and I had a, a stage fright at first, really big. I can imagine because yeah. I just what am I doing? You know, I'm I'm out front here, and uh, uh, the drummer Scott Seaver got me through it. Yeah, and uh, he, he he sort of talked me in, into not worrying about it at all. Just go out there and do it. So yeah. I did because they want to like you. And uh, all you got it, you know, you, you dance around a little bit and play. <laughs> and I uh, got my guys there to carry me pretty much. Yeah. So it's all good. And Cody, your son, is one of the members of the band. That's right. And, and Daniel Davies is Dave Davies' son of the Kinks. That's right. And my old band opened for the Kinks once. Oh, man, that's unbelievable. Back in the 70s. Wow, yeah. that's unbelievable. It was pretty amazing. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. In fact, uh, Ray Davies was out there during our sound check. And I'm watching, I... <laughs> I was so nervous and excited. Yeah, and he's just watching. And so he's standing there, and afterwards I just was walking up to him to tell him how much I loved Uh his work. And right before I got to him, he turned and walked away. Oh, no, (laughs) no, no. Yeah, it broke my heart. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, man. But it must be great playing with family on your tour. Well, that's the reason I did it. I thought, I'm never going to have a chance in my life to do this, to go out on tour with my... Son and Godson, Cody and Daniel are going to be with me on stage. We're the front men for this thing. So, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, Just Cody amazing. had worked with you on Masters of Horror on well, Cigarette Burns. He, he scored Cigarette Burns with you. He did. And uh, was that his first professional scoring job? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh how oh, exciting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he's he's played with some bands, too. And so he, <clears throat> he, he kept playing with bands. He played with bands over in Japan. They they play uh, oh, wow. music festivals and stuff. So he loved performing live, and he had no problem with it. Didn't even think about it. Now, how? What is the different feeling? I mean, this is your band, um, and it's your music that you've composed, uh, and in a way, you're directing this band and this. It, does it have a similar feel to directing a film where you're in charge of what the choices are? And No, I had to be led along by everybody. They had to tell really? me what to do. Here, here's how it's going to go. Really? Uh, yeah. How did that feel? Oh, it was great. Yeah. I just went along <laughs> with it. I didn't have to, to put out anything. And uh, uh, they, you know, we, we discussed, okay, when is this song going to come and when is the best time for this? And, oh, the, uh, the set list, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. And then right. the last the last tour we did last year was the winter tour was a very short one, but uh, we played um, Jack Nietzsche, Starman, uh, and uh, the really? Thing, and other other people's compositions, which right. was really fun. Oh, that's it was really great. fun. Well, let's talk about Starman for a, for a minute because it's one of the movies of yours that is really well regarded, but not thought of that much as a John Carpenter yeah. movie. But you don't think of it as a John Carpenter movie, right? Well, it's a, I got to do a love story. I mean, that's what it was about. I wanted yeah. got to sh- show my movie chops, mm-hmm. but uh, a studio movie. Yeah, uh, the thing when it came out was a big, <laughs> was a hated movie. <laughs> I was there. Hated. I know you know about it, and <laughs> you know I lost a job because of it, and I was trying to you know make a make, comeback. And which job did you lose? I lo- we were. I was going to do Firestarter. And, really? and they got fired off of that job. So, wow. But anyway... Because uh, the thing was unsuccessful yeah, theatrically. Yeah. And they didn't want to spend any money on, on horror movies. And, yeah. And, and, and I don't know. Anyway, uh, on my horror movies, on me, they didn't <laughs> spend any money at all. So you Bastards. Well, so along came this... Op- it was an opportunity to direct something I wouldn't be given. Right. But under normal circumstances. And so I said, yeah, hell yeah. You know, it had a little science fiction overtone, but it really yeah, wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a horror movie. It wasn't a scary movie. It was it was a little mild, 
a science fiction film, but it was a love story. And that yeah, was it's a, a romance. Yeah, yeah. And I and got with, to work with Jeff and Karen, Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. They were both great. And he was nominated for an Oscar. That's right. That's right. So it all turned out great. But And it's a wonderful movie, but it, it, I've heard you say that it didn't feel personal yeah. to you. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. It didn't, it didn't have some of the things that I, <clears throat> I dig my teeth in in movies that I really, you know, the sense of isolation, a siege, right. all sorts of things. It wasn't a very dark film. Definitely you know, not. It was a kind of yeah. a bright and sunny movie. Yeah. <clears throat> but, I mean, it, it's this great studio film. Everything that's good about studio movies is in there. It's very polished, and the photography and all the assets are really wonderful, and yet it's got this incredible romantic heart that you don't think of when you think of John Carpenter. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, go figure. <laughs> <clears throat> well... Did you choose the genre or did it choose you? Did you fi find yourself to be boxed in by it? I never felt boxed in. Um, I felt it was just an opportunity. You, you just keep working and uh, doing, doing projects that you love and eventually the chance will come to do something that's going to stick with you. Right. And do you like to create your own projects the most? Well, that was the way I got into business. And, and not necessarily. I love, you know, looking at other projects and trying to make something out of what somebody else has written. But stories that are of a darker nature, of a horrific nature, are the things that you're more drawn to? Yeah. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, always, I'm never going to be drawn to the, to the light and breezy and, right and romantic. And I'm I I live on the dark side. That's where I belong. <laughs> and do you still go out and seek out movies, contemporary films in the genre? I still watch movies. Yeah, I still watch them all. How do you much. do it? Do you mostly watch at home on demand? Do you go oh, out to the cinema? At home. You never go out to the movies <laughs> yeah, anymore. I don't. I don't want to go yeah. out. Well, how is this world of of instant access to everything that's out there? Yeah, no, man, it's so different. It's really different. I, I don't take advantage of all the, the things that are out there. I'm trying to limit it because it takes away all the excitement yeah. of waiting for something to come. It's, uh, it's an interesting new world. It I don't is. quite know. What do you think of it? Well, I think it's interesting because how do you uh, find the wheat for the chaff, you know, yeah. when, when you've got thousands, limitless streaming opportunities available yeah. to you? How do you choose that? I mean, well, what, how do you do it? How do you, because you're involved in, in that greatly. What do you do? I go to festivals a lot around uh, the world uh -huh. and, and I get to see things there or hear about things or there's another podcast for Blumhouse um, that... Uh, <clears throat> that our, our partners there uh, at Shockwaves, they'll talk about movies they've seen every, every week uh, oh, wow. and hear about things that don't play the cinemas because usually the most challenging and interesting films are not in your local multiplex. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I basically people recommend. And how about you? I mean, do you have... Well, and kind of that. I, I shop uh, and see what's playing on the on various places, uh, the titles that go by that. Like I iTunes heard of and Netflix and things. Yeah. 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 Have I heard of this thing? Does anybody know if it's any good? I'll ask friends, you know, what have you seen that you like and, and so forth. Has anything excited you lately? Well, there's a bunch of really good movies being made, not necessarily horror films, but right. really good. The, the billboards, three billboards movies, really, right. really good. Right. And Darkest Hour was fabulous. Yeah. I love that movie. And uh, did you see Disaster Artist? Uh, no, I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> That's I, a I lot have of to, fun. I have to see that. That's a lot of fun. But there are a lot of really interesting genre films, and I would love to see if there's anything that kind of seeped in. Yeah, to your... I don't know. I, I saw Get Out, and I thought ah, yeah. parts of it were really, really good. Yeah, oh, there's some great stuff, and probably going to be in in for some awards yeah. around the awards that's, time of uh, year. Jason Blum's uh, yeah. doing it. Speaking of which... <laughs> This show now is for Blumhouse, uh -huh. and you are now in business with Blumhouse. He with, owns everybody, okay? <laughs> yes. Can I just Indentured servitude. He owns everybody in horror. He owns us all. <laughs> so tell me about the reboot of Halloween. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was stagnant over at uh, the Weinstein Company. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it was not going anyplace. They couldn't figure out what to do with it. And uh, the rights went back to Miramax and uh, uh, Tariq Akkad. Uh, and uh, they went to Jason because he's a really successful horror producer. Right. And uh, he worked really, really hard to get something good, to get a good director and a good story. And he did. So I got to give it to him. How involved are you in this? I'm involved in it, every decision. Great. Well, not every decision, what am I saying? The script, read the script. But they ask for your opinion and your Sort of, yeah, yeah. they sort of. Was that the case in the previous remakes? Oh, God, no. So you weren't. But but I get paid also. So, (laughs) I mean, I, I didn't get paid in the other remakes. Really? No. Well, no, that's not true. What am I saying? They yeah, had to pay had every to, yeah. every time we made they made a sequel. They had to. How many of the money. sequels did you see? Yeah. Half, no, maybe. No, I, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't <laughs> half. I, I really didn't watch. What do you think is the most John Carpenter John Carpenter film? Oh man, well, it's. A, I suppose it's either a cross. It's a cross between. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13 and Escape from New York. They oh. both are, have a, a, the essence of me in them. Wow. Yeah. And what do you think is your signature? Is it, <laughs> is it tension? Is it, is it the widescreen camera? Uh, is it, it, that's yeah. what it is. It's usually widescreen almost all the time. Yeah. And <clears throat> was that a result of Forbidden Planet? Partially, but it was a result of me just falling in love with the widescreen when I was yeah. and, and all and all its forms because it's been in a lot of different different forms. You know, it started with uh, uh, Cinemascope, I guess. They, I think Cinemascope was back in the twenties. They invented it. Yeah, and it's well, been around a long time. Well, nineteen fifty three was the robe, which That's was the they, first official used it, Cinemascope. It was invented for, back. Yeah. what was his name? Uh, Abel, Abel Gans, I think. Oh, yeah, Abel Gans, Napoleon. Yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah, the CinemaScope was great. I And then Panavision, I think, was the best because it was widescreen, but it had the best lenses. It was gorgeous looking. And the, some of the Panaglide stuff that you used in the original Halloween, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the way it catches light and distorts Isn't the ray is yeah. really fascinating. It's that lens. It's that lens. Yeah. It's and, the, the lenses that Panavision made. So when you make a widescreen movie, the lenses that you shoot with squeeze everything. Right. And then when you project it, you have lenses that unsqueeze it. Right. Make it wide. So uh, it's really strange. The lenses that you shoot with, the ones that are squeezed, they have really interesting optical properties. The flares... The light coming through the, the camera, it's just gorgeous. And now there's software to, uh, to, have to, put to it imitate in. it that J.J. Abrams would do, yeah. like for the first time yeah. in Star Trek, yeah. I think he did. Yeah, yeah. And it was very much the Carpenter oh, look. Stop, you know? no, stop. That was done before. But it was used to be a mistake. Right. Back in the old But days. you embraced it. Well, it's also low-budget filmmaking. <laughs> we we right. don't have time to fix that. Let's go. How much did Halloween cost to make? 200 and some odd thousand. <laughs> Amazing. And how much did it end up grossing? I don't really know. I remember in there's its a, release, it was a, over uh, film. The, the 50 guys million. who released Halloween were pirates. Compass? Yeah. <laughs> They're Compass all pirates. Oh, really? So there's no way of knowing how much it really made. <laughs> but at the time, it was touted as the most profitable independent film of all time. It was, but I think, remember a movie called Blair Witch Project? Oh, yeah, 1999, yeah. I think that uh, topped it. I think that was, that's the movie that made so much money, and it cost nothing. Right, but that's a nice record to hold for 21 years. No, it's for a while, yeah, for a while. Does filmmaking, the idea of filmmaking still excite you? Sure, Uh, Last uh, fall, I went out and made a, a music video for Christine. Right. And right out on the street and worked all night. So, <laughs> oy, <laughs> at my age, you know, that's harder to do than You forgot to about be. that part. Yeah, I did. <laughs> but it was fun. And I loved getting out there and doing it. It was so much fun. So do you want to do another movie? Sure, if it's right. Do you have something that's exciting maybe, to you? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> or anybody else. Uh, but no, nah, maybe, sure. Uh, We're going to a couple of Are ideas. you writing? 
I'm not going to tell you. No. You write like more than any other human being on earth. <laughs> My God. Oh, no. Hardly. Don't you? Yes, no, you do. No, no. Yes, I'm working on a novel now. Are you? Yeah. Well, you've, you've done that before. You've I have not indeed. the first one. This will be my third novel and wow. my eighth book, I think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Those, that's hard. See, to me, that's really hard to do. But to me, it's so much easier than making a movie. You're just sitting yeah, down and typing true. and putting, you know, the the end product is what you type. That's true. As opposed to being out at uh, 3.30 in the sure. morning in the middle of... Uh, you yeah. know, downtown L.A. Yeah. Downtown L.A. Yeah, if yeah. you're lucky or Toronto, if you're not. So, mm. you know, on, Boy, uh, January 15th in that Toronto at 3 a.m. Oh, yeah. Lord, it's bad there. But never mind. But what's the part you love about filmmaking? <clears throat> oh, I kind of all of it. I, I love uh, even the pain of it. Yeah. You have to embrace all that. Yeah. Because you're working towards uh, an end, a product. And then it's not, I, I hate calling it a product. It's not a work. Yeah, it's a creation. And uh, when you get done, it's like, oh, my God, we finished this thing. It, it's, I mean, the cliche is that it's a big family, but you're surrounded with a bunch of really creative people all working toward the same end. That's right. Oh, yeah. And, you know, sometimes they all don't get along and sometimes right. you make changes on the way. But it's, uh, it's an army of people that are working to put this thing together. And make it fly and, and see what happens. Is there something that didn't turn out the way that you had hoped it would? Every single shot, every single day. Yeah. Everything. Everything doesn't... <clears throat> I mean, occasionally, I've never looked at something and saying, my God, that's genius. <laughs> I look at it and say, what was I thinking? Oh. That's a little off there. That's not This could have been so much better. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, everything. Nothing. Nothing is that... Uh, well, Perfect. I'd love to hear about, let's just talk about the thing for a moment. Your mm. first meetings with Rob Bottin. Uh -huh. Here was this young, brilliant madman. Yeah. And you'd worked with him. He was the lead uh, <laughs> pirate ghost in yeah. the fog. And That's he'd right. done some makeup effects in that. Uh -huh. And so tell me about the brainstorming sessions that you would have with him about the ideas on what this shape-shifting creature would be. We walked in with this idea that kind of... I bought right into, and he said, look, this creature can look like anything. It doesn't look like one thing. It looks like anything. So our job will be to come up with designs, but also gags that we can uh, make it look really incredible, like when it sprouts its legs. Right. Well, that's all, all designed under a, under a table, and all these people are working it. I was there the day you <laughs> shot that and with the making of it. Yeah, crew. yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, so that's, that was his idea. And I thought, you know what, this is, I haven't seen this. This is really new. So we just keep it changing, always changing. And, and doing it practically, mm -hmm. you know, there was no CGI in those days. No. Everything had to be made out of uh, sticks and latex and, and everything. So. Except that, for one, one, one sequence, one shot or two, uh, Randy Cook animated this thing coming up out of the floor. Right, stop motion. Yeah, animation. that's right. That's but right. what was the most time-consuming, and I'm sure everything went way over schedule on, on the thing. Oh, it was one that didn't necessarily turn out very well. It was Palmer on the couch. Uh and they were... Uh, when they're testing the blood? Well, yeah, the blood test scene, and his face kind of goes crazy. Mm -hmm. So there, we, we arrived to shoot it at early evening, and, and we're all tired, and they working on it, working on it. We fall asleep <laughs> and wake up, and we've realized we've kept Technicolor open all evening, oh, all really? night long. <laughs> And incurring great costs. And that was not good. Yeah. Well, there were so many complex things nobody had done before, so I don't know how you could even plan the schedule for those, those botine sequences. Uh, finally, after we got to finish the, shoot, the shooting on the main stuff, we didn't do too much of his stuff in the main unit shooting. Then it was like one at a time, and uh, it would be weeks in between. Right. We're ready to do this now. We're ready to do this now. And uh, just set it up and shoot. And uh, sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't work so well. <laughs> 
but that's what editing is for. That's right. That's right. One of the coolest things I remember was walking onto the refrigerated stage. Uh huh. <laughs> and so this was your idea to be able to see the see and feel the cold in the movie. Well, it was John Lloyd's idea. Really? Yeah. It was his his. Uh, uh, he came up with this idea of it was not a refrigerated straight stage. We went down to an ice house that was like at 30 some odd degrees. Oh my God, you couldn't work in there. <laughs> now that's what they did on the first movie, right. uh, the Hawks film. They refrigerated the set uh-huh. in an ice house. Oh, it's bitterly cold. Oh man. But John Lloyd figured out that we could. The production uh, designer. Yeah. Correct. He lowered the temperature and kind of refrigerated parts of the stage with these tubes so that if you really worked hard and drank coffee, you could make your breath show. Yeah. So it wasn't too bad. It was pretty chilly. It was. Well, it was. <laughs> it was. So the location <clears throat> stuff, you shot on a, on a glacier. Uh-huh. And I know it was a two-hour bus ride uh-huh. to and from that glacier each, each day when you were shooting. Were you Tell- up there? I can't remember. I was. Oh, you were. I was. Uh-huh. And stayed on the logging barge with ooh, the rest of the crew. Ooh. That's how I spent my birthday. It was <laughs> great. Down there, I think. It was grim, but tell me what you, I was only there for a couple of days. You were there for a long time. Yeah, we were. We were. Well, but you scouted it in the summer to shoot in the winter. So tell well, me about that. I never that saw this thing. You know, John Lloyd went up there and figured out how to do it. He came back and told me, okay, we're going to build a set on a glacier in the summertime. And then when it snows and goes into winter, the set will be covered. I thought, okay, great. <laughs> we. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It was the, the whole the whole thing. The shooting in snow is really hard because when it gets overcast, it's all white. It's white out. You can't shoot. And the trip up the mountain was really hard and really tough. So it was a slog. That was uh, just let's get this shot done. Let's get this shot. Let's. We had a couple of moments where we had just a great snowfall. We'd run out and grab a scene and shoot at night occasionally, but oh, oh, it was rough. Well, surely the thing was the most complicated movie yeah. you ever made. Yeah, it was. What was the most fun you ever had on Halloween? Halloween? Yeah, yeah. We were just flying by the seat of our pants on that movie. There's a bunch of young kids trying to make a movie. We were just having a blast. That's all. It was no big deal. And so was it exciting to you as a new, you know, fresh out of film school filmmaker making a, a suspense film, a Hitchcockian sort of film, if you will, and here's Jamie Lee Curtis? Well, we, nobody knew anything then. We didn't know it Jamie Lee Curtis. She was on a TV show. Right. And, but and, you knew who her, her mother well, was. Yeah, and so we cast her, and she was great. And But it was just, she was one of the group. It was a, a PJ Souls and Nancy Loomis. The girls were yeah. fabulous. And uh, it was fun to shoot. We shot, the big street is not too far away from this house right now. It's right right down this way. Yeah. In the the middle of Hollywood. So it was, but it was just fun. It was, uh, I don't know. You wish all the the movies would go as smoothly as that did. It really did pretty well, considering we had no money and no time. And it became this big success, and it painted you as a horror director or a suspense filmmaker. And that's something you're really pleased about. I am. I love it. But I I loved horror and science fiction when I was a kid. It was my big love. What's your favorite part of filmmaking? Is it the planning? Is it the Uh, shooting? Oh, being done, I would have to say. (laughs) Finished. Oh, it's done. There's one. It's done. It's out of the way. Next. That is that that's may really makes me feel good. But there are all kinds of different media you've become involved in, including games and yeah. comic books, um, uh, Asylum and Tales for a Halloween Night. That's uh, right. How involved are you in that process? I look at my wife and I say, "Way to go, good job." <laughs> so Sandy is yeah, pretty much the guru of, of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I write one one story an issue, but and, and I'm not involved that much. Will you be touring again? I don't know. Maybe. Do you want well, to? Yeah, maybe. If if we have enough. See, it costs money to go on tour. You have to pay for everybody to go over there right. and pay for their hotel rooms and pay. So we have to be making money that will cover all that. 
plus make some. a little yeah. bit. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Are I'm you still gonna... writing music? Yes, yes, yes. And we're going to do some scores this year. Going to do the Halloween score, I guess. And then, really? And uh, the 1,200 Souls is a movie that's being made. I'm going to do the score for that. That's great. Yeah, it'll be fun. So when you do Halloween, will be you be doing something entirely new, or will you be using themes that you've already established? I'll talk to the director about that and see what he wants, uh, because we can do a number of different things. We can do new, we can do the old stuff, we can refurbish the old stuff. I don't know. Tell me about their two times that come to mind immediately about you as an actor. <laughs> oh, God. No. One in the fog, oh, which yeah. you told me at the time you did that just so you would know the actor's experience so Boy. you could communicate better like yeah. that. And, and that you were actually terrified. Oh, it was horrible. Horrible. Do you still remember it? I remember it vividly. That I made everybody get out of the way in the scene with Hal Holbrook. Don't, I don't want to see you out there. <laughs> Oh, I wasn't that good. I mean, I just, that particular role, I wasn't that good. Father, can I get paid? Yeah, I know. Oh, come on. You were great. God, I was not. It was perfect. And then, body bags. Well, yeah. So Rick Baker did your makeup for that, right? And that that was the performance. Being in that makeup freed me up to to be this idiot. So you were the crypt keeper, basically. Yeah, Yeah, I was the human, real human crypt keeper, yeah. So tell me about how that project came together. You directed two of them, and Toby Hooper did one. That's right. So tell me about Body Bags, uh, the genesis of that. We, uh, well, it was a script, and we got a deal at Showtime based on the script. And, you know, you can see what they wanted. They wanted a... A Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt, and and I was going to be the crypt keeper, and... So uh, I took two of the episodes, and, and Toby took one. And uh, it was easy to do. You know, it's television, and it's uh, Yeah, but it was days. not like television. Well, no, <laughs> no, but it was a few days. It wasn't that bad uh, a schedule. No. And uh, so we finished shooting it, and then I did my bit as the, as the uh, coroner. And... Uh, and that was the last part that was shot. I was believe, your as I remember, I, yeah. be, I believe it was there. That was it, and uh, it turned out great. I mean, I loved it. I think it, it was fun. And it looked like you were having a great time. Yeah. Well, you had to because you know if, if I'm going to get up there and make a fool of myself with this makeup on, then I might as well just embrace it and go for it. And you did, <laughs> well, and it was great. Well, so it was a pilot, right? Yeah. So the hope was that it would turn into That's a weekly right. half hour. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I can't believe that they didn't buy it. They wanted to cut the budget and shoot it in Canada, uh, as they always yes, do, as you know. As we know. As, that's right. <laughs> so I thought, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, some of the most fun I've had was doing Masters of Horror and being able to work with all these different filmmakers yeah. and watch them all work. And watching you work... <laughs> Everybody, the thing people don't realize is directors never work together. So they never see how each yeah. other works. So for me to be there, 13 different directors each season was kind of amazing. And you had this very dry sense of humor about the whole thing. <laughs> like the first one you're saying, yeah, well, this piece of shit, it'll be fine. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's and, right. Uh, but then the second one, you came, I mean, the first few days you were uh, like that. And it was, you know, just, well, just in case it doesn't turn out well. <laughs> but I could also see you having a lot of fun and you were smiling a lot. And you sure. had, we had this little oasis built for you where you could smoke on the stage. <laughs> and they well, you got to realize something. When I realized immediately upon arriving on a location, my feet hurt. I, God, it hurt. Oh. I had to get new shoes. Oh, no. So by the time I got new shoes and I'd gotten on my feet for a couple of days, I was feeling better. Ah. Now my feet were hurting. Hey, hey, let's, let's go. <laughs> but uh, I guess everybody was impressed with the most impressive director was Dario. Because of just the unique way he directs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, uh, he's quite a character. He is. And amazing stuff. I mean, yeah. you both had amazing first scripts and second scripts yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, but Cigarette Burns, tell me what drew you to that particular script. 
Well, you talked us all into doing this silly thing up there. <laughs> and uh, it was, I thought, this is a unique script. I like this. It has a, uh, I don't quite understand what this movie does, but I don't care. This movie in the, in the movie. So uh, off we went. And I got to work with Norman, which was great. I Norman Reedus, yeah. yeah. But it's also kind of a film student's movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like a, yeah. a cinema fan film. Yeah, in yeah, a yeah. Way. Um, it's partially that, yeah. And then the second one you did, you decided you wanted to work with those writers again. Uh-huh. Drew and Boy, Scott. I liked them a and, lot. Yeah, so yeah. you had a really good experience. I did. Very good. I did. And uh, I have to say, I met uh, I, Attila Soleil, was a great cameraman. Yeah. He yeah. did a great job. Yeah. And the crew was great. I remember years ago you telling me that you could run black leader through a projector and do one white frame with a loud noise and make an audience jump. I've heard this. I've heard that. I don't think I said that. I may you have said, said that it. to me, actually. I did? Yeah. I, um, I got it from but, somebody. But I don't that, think that's true anymore, necessarily. I think you can get audience to jump if you make a loud sound. Well, you were talking about creating fear. Yeah. And that was to scare somebody is one thing, but to instill a lingering sense of dread mm, and fear right, well, was different. something quite different. And how, how do you approach that? You do you have mechanics? It, you have to look at that as suspense. You have to look at the audience says to themselves, something is going to happen that I don't know if I want to see. I really don't know if I want to watch this. This is going to be bad. It's going to happen to somebody that I'm watching the movie and I care about because I've invested myself in them. And, oh, God... You idiot, don't go in that room. Don't don't bend down and do that. Don't pick up that. That's how you do it. You get the audience involved in your characters, and then you use the Hitchcock rules of suspense. Show the audience first what's going to happen. Show them there's danger here, and then bring your character into it. Always, always the... The bomb under the table. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Show yeah. it to them. Yeah. Is there something of yours that best exemplifies that? I've never gotten there. I've always tried. Uh-huh. I've always tried to get, you know, uh, some sort of sense of perfection, but I can't. Well, I really appreciate you having uh, this conversation Absolutely with Absolutely do. We just keep doing this through the years. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, it's a library now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, Mick. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.